Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. So you're in your office at the moment on a Sunday night. I am. Working away. What are you, what's, what's up on your screen at the moment? Facebook. (laughs) The cornerstone of every producer's uh, Sunday evening. Yeah. No, I have a couple of um, chat windows open. One of them is with the guy who hosts my website and the other one is with my sister to see if she could see my website because it's just disappeared from the internet. So, yeah, that wasn't why I came into the office. I planned to do some script feedback, but here I am. Here you are giving some website feedback instead. Yes. What's the uh, what's the script that you're currently plugging away at? Uh, it's for a film called Shida, which I'm working on with a writer director from Sydney called Shida Faramand, um, and we got Gender Matters funding for it earlier this year. So yeah, just getting to the exciting part now, where it's getting ready to go. That's fantastic. The, the kind of the landscape, I suppose, is, is shifting so, uh, um, I don't want to say dramatically because it's not, uh, you know, still we look at something like the Actor Awards and there's, which have just been announced recently and there's no female names in the, uh, in the uh, director's nominations list. But if you look at some of the initiatives that things like Screen Australia are starting to take, there's definitely a, a progression that's happening. Yeah, it feels like the right time to take advantage of being female, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I kind of have mixed thoughts about it. Like it's definitely helpful and I definitely think there needs to be changes. But at the same time, I kind of see opportunities for everybody and it's hard to exclude some people who are working just as hard from opportunities just because they're a certain gender. So I'm in two minds. I think it's a great thing, but I also feel bad for the friends I know who are male who are really trying hard to get ahead and not having quite as many opportunities at the moment. It's funny you should say that uh, because I have uh, I have had a sense of myself uh, having submitted a couple of times in the last year for some funding through government channels and seeing the way that the that that's kind of presented and feeling like there's there's a very strange kind of uh push and pull feeling of well it's almost like i as a male filmmaker am uh being what's what's i don't know i I can't think of the politically correct terminology but it feels like i am being excluded because of what people have been doing for the sort of 50 years prior to my decision to be in this industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think it is fantastic that they've created these uh, new platforms and initiatives. Um, but maybe what we, maybe what you're saying is it needs to be an equality thing. It doesn't need to be a polarity thing. It's not, well, men have had it for this, so women should have it for this. Maybe it needs to be everyone, everyone's on the same page. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, and I think it's important that it's recognised that there is a lack of female filmmakers and that something is done to try and boost those numbers. Um, And I find myself, because I started in camera department, so I always got the questions through my agents of, can she carry boxes, can she do this, can she do that? (laughs) Um, But I never felt like I was being discriminated against in every way. I always felt that I had the same opportunities that everyone else did in camera. But I'm finding now that I'm a producer, I kind of have this subconscious bias myself towards women in technical roles. And obviously I'm well aware that women are capable of doing those roles because I did them myself. But it's interesting to recognize how society has kind of shaped my brain into having these ideas that I don't even consciously know I have. Um, so I think that's part of the problem and maybe the more that it's brought into the spotlight, the more it can be fixed potentially.
Kirsty Stark joins me in the chat cave this week for coming up next, friends out there in podcast universe. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next with Alastair Marks. That is my voice, the voice of Alastair Marks. And this week's episode, as I said, is with Kirsty Stark. She is an upcoming producer in Australia. Uh, her most recent film was A Month of Sundays. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about her crowdfunding campaign and her crowdfunded web series, Wastelander Panda, which you can find online. And keep your eyes peeled for Goober, which is coming to ABC iview in 2017. You can check out information on that at www.gooberseries.com. And finally, if what Kirsty's saying resonates with you as someone who would like to transition into the film industry from study or from making your own work, Kirsty is, uh, is running her own online course. And you can find out all about that at www.epicfilms.com.au slash courses. And, you know, while you've got that website open and you're registering for your first online course in learning how to transition into film, you might as well go to www.comingupnext.com.au where you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean and Podbean as well if you'd like to subscribe on multiple platforms if if you're really, really super keen. And while you've got your subscription page open, you might as well do a little rating, leave a little review and I will keep bringing awesome guests all the way to you. I think people like you with with what you're doing and i mean our generation i suppose of filmmakers and probably and even more so the generation that will come after us will be brought up into a a climate hopefully where it won't be a a question of gender or race or religion or anything of that kind of matter maybe that's being very idealistic but or or perhaps blindly optimistic but it would be nice to consider that the world is becoming so global uh, communally that it will it really will become more a matter of well who's telling great stories as opposed to let's fill a gender quota or let's fill a race quota or you know whatever that may be. Yeah, and it would be amazing if it gets to that point where it's not even a discussion anymore. Mm. So you grew up in Adelaide. Yes, eventually. I was born in Murray Bridge, which is about an hour away from Adelaide. Um, When I was six, my family lived in Japan for 18 months and then we moved to Adelaide when we got back to Australia. Yeah, wow. So most of my childhood was in Adelaide but via a detour. So what was was it like to move from a kind of small town – then to Adelaide and then to Japan for whereabouts in Japan were you living? We lived in a city called Nagoya and I was six, so I don't really remember much of my life before we lived in Japan. Um, but my parents were teachers and my dad got a job teaching English over there. So we moved and my sister and I went to a Japanese kindergarten and then I graduated and went to a Japanese primary school. So we both got thrown into this environment where we didn't speak any of the language and ended up having an amazing experience. Well, what an amazing opportunity to kind of experience the world at a young age. Do you feel like there were things that you learned there that really kind of shaped you uh, as, a, as a creative, as a storyteller? I think that's probably where the seeds were planted of filmmaking. Um My mum had this home video camera and she actually started filming everything that we did just because it was so unusual to be foreigners in Japan at that time. Mm. Um, Fortunately, we got back to Australia and everything was stolen from our house. Our house was broken into and they took our camera and all of the tapes from our trip. So we've got half an hour. I don't know. It was one of those old systems where you like opened up your VHS flap and then stuck a little tape inside. Yeah, and yeah, I know. My so grandparents had one maybe of those. They just yeah, they probably just didn't want to pay for tapes. It was probably <laughs> that simple. And yeah, we lost everything except for about half an hour of footage from the whole 18 months. But I think that got me used to being around cameras and storytelling to some degree, mm. probably. 
Do you remember the first time that you yourself uh, wrote a script or, you know, performed or made a film? Something where you personally had that experience of being involved in the process and it could even, you know, just on a very basic level, uh, that's kind of carried you through uh, where, where those seeds were actually planted. Um, it's something that we've always done in my family, I think. Um, my cousins and I used to put on Christmas concerts every year just for the rest of the family and then we moved on to making home videos, things like that. And there's a letter that I wrote from probably when I was four or five before we moved to Japan where it's like, dear mum, there is no underwear left. P.S. <laughs> you, mum, <laughs> you, dad and Carly can come to my magic trick show. So I guess it was just kind of ingrained in me from a young age of being encouraged to be creative and try new things and no one would laugh at my magic tricks even if they didn't work. <laughs> what were your magic tricks? I don't remember. I have the letter, but I have no idea what the tricks themselves were. <laughs> and so when you came back to Adelaide, I guess you would have been about eight. Yeah. And starting or continuing primary school, starting high school. Do you remember being sort of continuing with that thread of creativity through school or were you a bit more academic? Um, I was a bit of everything, really. I always got good grades. I played basketball at a district level and then always did art classes and drama classes all through high school as well. So I was kind of a combination. Bit of and an I never really had, yeah, I'm not sure where my real favorite aspects lay, really. And so when did you? make a decision that you wanted to pursue filmmaking was it something like for me I came to filmmaking through via acting uh and you know there's people that I've spoken to that kind of have all different kind of avenues that have taken them into doing what they eventually wind up doing as a, a lifestyle choice what was that for you it's interesting because people have asked me that question before and I don't remember a specific moment. Um, my parents have told me that when I was about 14, we went to visit their friend in Perth who worked at a video production company and he had basically edited the holiday movies of his kids with special effects and titles and all sorts of things. And they think that that was the moment. And I remember going there and I remember liking the video, but I'm not sure whether that was the decision point for me or not. But I know by the time I was in year 11 or 12, I knew that I wanted to go to uni and do film. Um, but I don't remember how I specifically made that decision. I just remember not wanting to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what kind of film I wanted to do. I had no inclination of whether I'd be a director or a camera person or a producer. I don't think I even really knew what roles there were in film. I just knew I wanted to do film. And were your parents supportive of that choice or were they discouraging or what was their kind of vibe? Yeah, my parents have always been supportive of whatever I wanted to do really. Um, I think their attitude is if it doesn't work out, you can always go and do something else. Mm. And I've kind of always thought worst case scenario, I believe in myself and my skills enough to go out and get a job that will make me money and enable me to live in some way. So... I guess I just decided I'd keep doing film until it didn't work out and so far it's worked out. <laughs> it seems to be unfolding very well. Yeah, it's been a pretty exciting journey really. Mm. It's amazing what happens when you're not really planning it. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, definitely sympathize with that. Sympathize? That's the wrong word for that kind of sentence. I can definitely relate to that. You know, I feel like, I don't think, I'm not sure if you'll be able to, or if you kind of resonate with this, but I don't feel like I've ever really made a particularly long-term kind of structured plan for my life in the sense of, you know, this is my, this is my six-month goal, this is my three-year plan, this is my five-year plan, and this is where I want to be in 10 years. It's like, here's the overall kind of goal of what I want to be doing with my life. 
And now I've been doing this kind of thing for long enough to know that probably every six to 12 months there's going to be a, a, something that I could never have foreseen happening, happen, uh, mm-hmm. either good or bad, um, that's going to yeah. take me down a, re- a, a path that I never would have been able to imagine. So I'm going to go with the flow. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really important to kind of have that overall plan or that bigger concept of the types of things you might like to do because that helps you to find the opportunities that are right. Mm. But in terms of the specifics, you can never predict them. So there's no point making six-month plans that are going to change after three months, I think. (laughs) No, not until you get into pre-production anyway. Yeah. I guess my thing is I kind of have a fear of commitment. Right. (laughs) But when I'm on a specific project or doing a specific role I'll always commit to that 100% until it's done Mm. and whether that's a three-year thing or a five-year thing or however long I'm needed on that project I'll commit to it but then I always want to be able to change pathways or change course throughout my life and go okay that's done now what's the next thing that I want to do and how do I move on to that next thing from where I am and what have I learned on the last thing that will lead to better opportunities for the next thing. Yeah, and I suppose it's also about having the flexibility to kind of go, well, this is how I thought this was going to play out, uh, but I'm willing to kind of go with this new way that it's presented uh, or, you know, if something changes or whatever, um, having that flexibility and malleability to not get, you know, uh, not not be so stubborn or headstrong or um, uh, stuck in, in, in a particular idea of something yeah I mean I think I would have missed out on a lot of the things that have been amazing in the last five ten years if I had had my mindset on one particular thing that I wanted to do Mm. having that openness really opened me up to more opportunities and Mm. yeah so which film school did you eventually go to I went to Flinders Uni in South Australia and did the Bachelor of Creative Arts in screen production. Amazing. And what was what was that? Was was that the three year? Obviously, it's a bachelor's degree. So that was a three year course that you did. What was the kind of, uh, I guess, arc of that course? It's a selective course, so they would take up to twenty people each year based on a portfolio and interview process. So we started doing production from our first year and that was it was pretty much a 50-50 split between production and theory and then there were some other classes they threw in for all of the creative arts students which also included drama and creative writing and we had to do classes like legal issues for creative artists as well. That's great. Which, yeah. It's really good that they would so, put that sort of stuff in there. What what did you submit as uh, your portfolio? Um, I submitted um, my Year 12 Visual Arts portfolio, so the work I'd done for that class at school, um, and a video I had made with my cousins, which was a really, really awful <laughs> today, tonight. Like It was basically a parody of Today, Tonight. Yeah. And I watched it now and I can't believe they let me into the course. <laughs> um, yeah, it like the eye lines don't match. There's no like there's no line, so everyone's looking in the same direction even though they're meant to be talking to each other. Right. And, yeah, it's really and the content's terrible and the lighting's terrible and everything's terrible. But I don't know, I must have interviewed well or something. Yeah. Or maybe they needed more women. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, but they let me in and I was, yeah, it's one of the best things that's probably happened, um, both because I had no technical skill before I went there, but also just the people that I met through that course are the people that I started the company with and I'm still working with a lot of them today. Mm. What's your take? This is an interesting debate that I have with people often as someone who has done both film school and 
I guess, uh, on-set apprenticeship, if you like, through working in the camera department. What's your take on the film school versus practical experience debate where, you know, some people say, should I go, is it worth going to film school or should I just go and get an ex- uh, life experience working on set? I think both pathways are possible. Um, if you don't go to film school, you have to be the kind of person who can go out and meet people and get to know the community you kind of naturally find when you're at film school. Um, But I was the kind of person who started volunteering on honours projects in first year and got to know people straight away and then continued that and working on set outside of uni from about third year and honours. So I was starting to meet people in the industry before. Um, I don't think you have to go to film school. I think going to film school gives you the opportunity to make mistakes and make a lot of films that don't matter and get to know people that you'll work with in future. Whereas if you start by working on set, you're not generally trusted in the more creative roles or the roles where you're part of the decision-making process. So you need to find your own way to be making those films while you're learning. But yeah, I, I think it depends on the person and depends on the pathway they're willing to commit to and the ability to recognize what they're missing out on. Because mm. I know a lot of people who've gone to film school who've never gone anywhere after that and I know a lot of people who started working on set who then went on to have careers in creative roles. So it can go either way. Yeah. It's interesting the two kind of big things you mention about positive points in terms of going to film school, not that there's not more than that. But the two sort of things that you hit on, I suppose, are the people that you'll meet and then the practical kind of elements of it. And those are the two things that I would also vouch for as being good for uh, film school. And I highlight that to kind of say it's not really about the classes that you're in because one of my teachers used to say, uh, you can't teach someone how to make a film, but you can learn. Uh, by which he means, you know, there's you can't, you know, teaching someone the theory of filmmaking is only useful so far as, you know, learning, teaching someone the theory of swimming. But until you actually jump in the pool, it's, it's all kind of useless information. Yeah, you definitely have to go out and make mistakes. And I think I learnt more on my first feature film job than I had learnt in the previous three years at uni. But having had those opportunities to do things myself and shoot things myself and work on projects creatively, I think it meant that I was able to integrate that knowledge better than I would have if I'd just gone out on set without any prior experience. Yeah. What was the first uh, feature that you got to work on? Um, I did two really low-budget ones as a volunteer. The first one was called The Resident Magician, which I did as my industry placement while I was at uni. And I don't think that's been seen outside of the cast and crew screening. Right. (laughs) Um, The second one was a fantastic little Adelaide comedy called The Marriage of Figaro. Um, Yeah, that was great and I learnt so much from that. And then the first real feature where I got paid was as a video split operator on Beautiful Kate. Amazing. Which was Rachel Ward's film. That was, yeah, really exciting. Mm. What was it like to, because that was her directorial debut, wasn't it? I believe so, yes. What was it like to um, to kind of watch her as a an expert, you know, uh, prolific actor um, kind of step into the role of, of director? Yeah, I I always felt from day one like she had complete control over the story she wanted to tell and everything that she was doing. Um, From my perspective, I was just trying to learn as much as I could and it was my first time on a big feature film. So I don't know, I may not have spent a lot of time watching her and recognising (laughs) where she was coping or not coping. But yeah, from my perspective, she was always 100% in control and she really handled it well. Um, but, yeah, it would be interesting to experience that set again as someone, you know, five to seven years later who now knows what I know and see it through different eyes. 
So what was the experience like for you kind of walking onto that, you know, walking onto a, a new set on the first day is always like the first day of school in a way. It's kind of a, a, a daunting and yet exciting experience. What, what was it like for you to be coming onto that, uh, you know, as someone who was kind of fresh out of film school? Yeah, um, it was pretty cool. We shot up in the Flinders Ranges for the first few weeks. So my first introduction was getting in a camera truck with the clapper loader and driving down to set. And that was really interesting. Um, Yeah, we used to just wake up in the morning in the shadow of Wilpina Pound and go out to this amazing property and shoot out there every day. So to me it was like living the dream. You couldn't ask for anything better. And I was lucky in that the focus puller and the clapper loader were both really experienced camera department members. Like they would work all over the world because they had UK visas and Australian visas. So they'd worked on massive Hollywood and massive UK films. So to learn from them was pretty incredible. And they treated me really well from day one and took me back to basics and did everything that I needed to know. It wasn't just about this is how you load film or this is how you do a slate. It was this is the philosophy that we have to make our camera department the best and no one should be waiting for you. And if you've ever got a spare moment, then go clean the camera truck. And all of the protocol around being in camera department and being on set was there as well as the actual tactical learning. So, yeah, I loved it. What were some of the, uh, I guess, philosophies that you learned from them that you maybe still carry with you today? Um, Yeah, the main ones are probably just that no one should ever be waiting on you. So if that means getting to set half an hour early and making sure that everything for your department is ready to go, then you don't want to be the ones that are holding up the set or holding up the process. It's a business and it's there to make money basically and the better you can be part of that process and help the film succeed, then the more likely you are to continue to be hired. So I guess in an overall philosophy, it's what can you do to add value for other people and to make their life easier. What were some of the main things that you think from a practical point of view that you learned when you were working on that film? I mean, there were things like how to load film because it was shot on film and I was able to go from that film to work as a clapper loader on the next feature that I was on, so it was a pretty big step up. But even just things like how to wrap a cable, how to run cables along a low loader and make sure that the car's not going to run over them. Um, Yeah, how to do a loop tie for the dolly, all of that kind of stuff that's so important but often people don't take the time to teach you properly. They just assume that it's common knowledge. So all the little skills add up, I think. Mm. And so you kind of uh, alluded to from there and, and mentioned earlier that you went from that into working in the camera department for a little while before you stepped into uh, production and, and becoming a producer. Mm-hmm. What was your kind of experience working in the camera department? You touched briefly on you know, uh, difficulties you faced as a woman being in the camera department just from a, I suppose, physicality and practical point of view. What was that kind of experience like for you over the years? I loved camera department. Um, I'd still probably go back there potentially if I didn't have anything to do production-wise. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I mean, I wanted to be a cinematographer at that point. I did cinematography for my honours year at uni And my intention was that I was going to be shooting films myself. So working in the camera department was just an opportunity to learn from some of Australia's best cinematographers and be on set and see how they lit sets and see how the camera moved and see how it all fit together and how they would use the creative aspect of camera to tell stories. Because storytelling was always the big thing for me in camera department and the films that I shot. And, yeah, I never really felt at a disadvantage from being female. There were probably five incidents throughout the four or five years that I worked in camera departments that kind of I noted even. But, yeah, generally I just 
loved being on set and loved that feeling of everybody working together to achieve something. Mm. Did you establish uh, epic films before, what, like while you were in the camera department or was that after when you had kind of transitioned into being a producer? No, Epic Films was started by myself and another cinematographer, Viv Madigan, and we basically wanted to shoot on film. We wanted to shoot some short films on film and none of the producers would let us because they said it was too expensive and everything was moving towards digital. So we basically called ourselves Epic Films as a joke and <laughs> we each put two, <laughs> we put $2,000 each in of our own money that we'd saved from working on set. And we told all of our friends and the people we went to uni with that we had $4,000 of private investment. Right. <laughs> we didn't tell them it came from us and we invited them all to submit their scripts and said that the best two would be shot on film, one by him, one by me. And that's how Epic Films started. That's amazing. What a, what a, what a hustle. Yeah, well, we called it the Epic Film Fund. And we launched it on New Year's Eve at midnight at our friend's party and <laughs> made this little video to kind of encourage everyone to apply. It was kind of ridiculous in hindsight, but... <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's also quite uh, innovative, you know. It's a uh, uh, very, very clever yeah. kind of from a marketing point of view and from a launching point of view. Yeah, well, we got to make those two films and... That's basically what started the whole journey of Epic and why I'm a producer these days. So you made two. Pretty- so you shot two two shorts on film for four thousand dollars. When we had got the scripts, we realised that four thousand dollars is a ridiculously small <laughs> amount of money, and so we then went out and raised more money. We had a raffle, and we also had a quiz night. I think to raise the money we needed to do both films. But, yeah, we figured out our goal and Viv shot one and I shot one and they're the first two epic films that were ever made. Are they available online for anyone to see? They are. They're on our website. What 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 are they called? Um, the one that Viv shot is called Landscape Scene and the one that I shot is called L'Artiste. Very cool. I'm going to go and check them out. Um, cool. And so establishing epic films and moving into producing, when did you kind of decide that that was something that you really wanted to pursue, that you were kind of willing to leave the cinematographer's dream behind or at least put it on hold? It wasn't really an intentional decision. Um, Those first two films, I was doing a lot of the production work despite not being a producer simply because our producer was working full-time and didn't really have the opportunity to do as much work as someone like me who was working occasionally in camera department and had a lot of spare time in between. So did a lot of the logistical stuff for those two films but didn't get a producer credit because I didn't want to be a producer. And then after that, our friend Vic, who had assisted on those films, in camera department came to us and she said she had an idea for the first project she wanted to make as a writer-director and that was Wastelander Panda. And she basically said, Kirsty, you have a production company. I need a producer. Can you help me make it? And I said, no, I'm not a producer. I'm not (laughs) doing it. And she said, I don't have anyone else. And I said, I'll help you make a pilot episode of your TV show that you want to make and then we'll hand it over to someone who knows what they're talking about. And then I realized that you need a lot of money to make a pilot episode of a TV show. And so we made a little teaser to try and attract financing, put that online, got a bunch of views and then turned it into a web series. Now, when you say a bunch of views, (laughs) I think you're being a little bit modest. Uh, it's quite a successfully run uh, campaign that you did to crowdfund money in a time where crowdfunding was very uh, infantile. I mean, it's still quite, it's still somewhat in its infancy, but you guys were kind of really uh, on that first kind of wave of it, weren't you? Yeah. Um, at the time, I think we were the highest raising Australian film project on a crowdfunding site. 
which was $25,000, just over $25,000. So it's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. I mean, it was all a big gamble for us and we didn't think we were going to make it for part of the time probably. Um, when we started it, we basically added up all the money that we had in our bank accounts that we could use to put in at the last minute if we hadn't reached our target. <laughs> um, and we ended up not only – we set a target of $20,000 and we not only made that but then made an extra 5000 on top of it. So we didn't end up having to put any of our own money in after all, was which incredible. was awesome. Incredible. What what do you think are the kind of cornerstones of a successful crowdfunding campaign? I think you need a really interesting or innovative idea or an innovative angle to promote your idea. You need to establish a sense of momentum, like this thing's going to happen. You guys can either come along for the ride or not. And just a sense of legitimacy, like you're going to be able to pull this off and it will be something that people are going to be interested in seeing, not just yet another film that someone's friend made with their cat. (laughs) And you get a car signed photo, signed by the cat. Yes, you could get a signed photo by the cat. Uh, If I was going to do that, I would do that in a very different way, I think, than just signed photos. Yeah. Like, does anyone really want a signed photo of the cat is the question. Yeah, that's one of my gripes with with crowdfunding. when when people haven't put very much thought or kind of lateral thought, I suppose, into the campaign, it just kind of feels like a, an entitlement process of we need money, we're artists, so you should give us your money and we'll give you a photo signed by people that you don't really have any sort of investment in or, or care for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the big question to ask, not just in crowdfunding but in any kind of financing or any kind of interaction where you want something from somebody else is what's in it for them and if there's nothing in it for them then why would they give you their money or their time or whatever else you're looking for yeah you have to find a way to make it valuable for them and that's not just about money it could be about an experience or an opportunity that they might not get could be a feeling of goodwill but you have to identify why it is that they're potentially willing to give that to you and then make the case as to why they'll get that from you rather than from someone else. And that goes back to what you were talking about, the philosophy that you learned when you were on that first uh, on Beautiful Kate, you know, what value are you adding? Exactly. Uh, And how can you be the most valuable asset to whomever it may be? Yeah, and I think that works whether you're trying to make something and you want that asset to be valuable to them or whether you're just a person who's going for a job and needs to prove that you can add value to that person. Totally. And I think also to go back to crowdfunding for a second, it's it's kind of your first point of call to establishing an audience. So if you want these people to come with you on not only the, the kind of journey of the crowdfunding campaign, but also to be your first real cheerleaders for your show or short film or play or whatever. I really think you need to engage with them on a kind of human-to-human level and be acknowledging the value that they're bringing to you by giving them that back in tenfold. Yeah, and just giving them an experience like, not making it about us and them but making it a journey that all of us are going on together and that they're part of as well because they're there at the ground level. Mm. So once you'd got the funding for Wastelander Panda to make the pilot for the web series, and again, you guys were making a web series before you know, Screen Australia had specific funding initiatives for that kind of filmmaking before it was kind of the in vogue thing that, you know, new writer directors would do to kind of establish themselves before moving on to uh, larger scale projects. So again, you know, you guys are were being quite innovative. So once you'd got the funding to make that pilot episode, what was the process then like to get it all up and running and then to, I guess, sell the concept to get funding to make the rest of the um, show? Yeah, um, well, we had a core team of probably four people. So Vic Cox, who was the writer-director, Viv Madigan, who I started the company with, who 
who's the cinematographer, and then Ella McIntyre, who came on board after that initial prologue stage because she was the one who was integral in our social media and online marketing strategies. She just kind of knew the internet backwards from spending so much time on it during her childhood and high school years. So she was the one who kind of went, well, this blog is owned by this conglomerate and this is how news spreads from blog to blog and explained all of that for us. So, yeah, so we had that core team and then basically set about creating a strategy for how we would go about making the series. So at that point we'd only made one three-minute kind of teaser trailer and then having had so many views online, we started to set up social media and from the end of our crowdfunding campaign, we're really thinking about how we would work for that audience and give them what they wanted to see while also building what we wanted. So we ended up designing three episodes. And one was to tell the history of the series and how things became the way they were in the wasteland. Um, the second one was drama-based, which was designed to be a longer episode, about 15 minutes, which was designed so that we could show off Vic's directing ability and the potential to move to long form because we were told that the industry would really need to see her ability to direct something over a longer period of time rather than just a short film if we were going to move into TV. And then the third one was designed to be the action-based fight scene that would grab people's attention online and that would hopefully have the most viral spread when we released the three episodes. Mm. So we were being really strategic about how we were going to get them out there and what benefits each of them would give to us as a team for our future careers. It's very, uh, very clever kind of, I suppose, or strategic uh, filmmaking and planning, uh, I guess, kind of underpinning the discussion that we had earlier about um, being methodical and structured but having some kind of flexibility and malleability in your process. Yeah, I think it's just about knowing or discussing as a group what you want your overall goals for the project to be and then what all of you individually want to get out of it and what you'd want the audience to get out of it and kind of looking at it from all different angles and going, okay, of all of these opportunities and ideas we have for this project, what are the key ways with the least amount of money and energy that we can make all of this happen? You said uh, that Vic brought this project to you and you also mentioned that you, you know, when you started Epic Films, you invited people to submit scripts for your consideration. What, mm-hmm. what is it for you now that you're, I suppose, five or so years into your uh, career as a, pro- as, as a full-time producer? What do you kind of look for in scripts in story, what what is it for you that makes a script uh, that that makes a good script or a good story? For me, it's something that I resonate with emotionally, whether because of the humor or the empathy, I guess, something like that. Um, I think the important thing for any kind of screen content, whether it's film or television, is that it's something that the audience can identify with and relate to and go on a journey with. So the genre doesn't matter so much to me, although I tend to be more of a fan of lighter stuff rather than darker genres. But it's really a matter of reading a one-pager, reading the script, and then I know somehow (laughs) if I want to work on something or not. Intuitively. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't very helpful when you're trying to describe it to people as to what you want. But, (laughs) yeah, I can probably go into more detailed technical (laughs) descriptions of why I like certain things. But then I break the rules, so it doesn't always work. Mm. Well, rules are made to be broken. And I think we can come back to what I was saying before with that as well, is that rules exist for a specific purpose. And sometimes you can achieve that purpose without following the rules. So you can twist that back on people and Mm. give them what they want without doing it the way they want it done. 
Yeah, and I think especially when you're dealing in micro or low budget kind of worlds, you need to be you need to have that kind of uh, perspective and that kind of lateral brain to be able to know where you can break the rules or bend the rules to achieve what you need to achieve. Yeah, I mean, when we first did Wasteland of Panda and we got some money from the South Australian Film Corporation, we basically took that concept because we were the first government-funded project in Australia that didn't have a market attachment and we were told we needed a distributor or a broadcaster and we asked why that was and they said it was to basically prove that we were going to get to an audience and they wouldn't be wasting their money. And so we said, if we can use our online statistics and basically break down what we've done online in order to prove that, would we have a chance? And they said, go have a shot. And we wrote a massive application and pulled everything to pieces and put it back together again. And they ended up giving us the money. So that kind of thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it served you very well uh, to to that end. Uh, What were some of the... I suppose, highlights or challenges that you faced in uh, in trying to get Wastelander Panda to completion? I don't mean necessarily just the kind of pilot series, but the whole project. Um, the main challenge for us was that we were trying to compete on a level of something. Like what Vic really wanted to make was an HBO-style 12 by one hour TV series. And everything we did was aimed to take us one step closer and one step closer to getting that goal. Um, But just the audience in Australia for that kind of content is too small to justify the funding that we needed to make something of that quality that could compete. So I think that was our main issue. Mm. We all learnt a lot from the project and we all loved doing it, but probably as a business decision it wasn't necessarily viable at the end of the day Mm. at that time anyway a couple of years ago now what were some of the uh i suppose glowing moments that you that you took away from that it was just a fun journey for us really i mean we didn't know any different so we kind of just punched to try and do whatever we could And we ended up getting to go to South by Southwest and did a panel there and showed our first episode at South by Southwest in a panel that was immediately before Ted Hope's speech. Like we were in the same segment, the same room as Ted Hope, which was crazy. Um, We had that. We got to have a meeting at HBO and go into their office and like look at their little miniature Game of Thrones (laughs) Iron Throne replica. It was just a cool experience and we all learned so much from being on that project and I think the main lesson that we took away is we were making something that we wanted to and we were doing it in a way that we wanted to Mm. and probably the most difficult part of it was that none of us had the experience to know what we were doing so a lot of the decisions we made which were aimed at getting the project to the best place possible weren't necessarily the right ones in hindsight. So, While you were uh, working on Wasteland of Panda or kind of, you know, taking it around the world, was there ever, I don't know if you have this, I certainly have a, a little bit of a fraud complex at times when it comes to uh, being a creative person where I feel like uh, I, I may not be... Uh, as qualified as other people think or maybe or I have a lot of self-doubt or you know things that may or may not be true but it's just kind of that rhetoric uh, in my head that's kind of uh, makes me I don't know uh, brings me to a, a sense of humility or something but did you ever find that you kind of had a feeling like while you were doing this you were in over your head or you you were going to be found out at any moment and people were you know that, that you maybe didn't know what you were doing not that you didn't know what you were doing but maybe that was something that you were thinking to some degree yeah I think as a producer I was probably more removed from that than Vic was as a writer director and I think she went through the most challenging process of all of us because we kind of created this momentum for the project and talked it up and she was the one that had to meet those standards 
and create something while people had that expectation, which I think was really hard. It's kind of two ways. I even wrote a blog post about it once in that you need to create that momentum for the project to get the funding to get made, but then you place all of that expectation on the creators and they have to make something in the public eye. They can't just go and hide away and that's, you know, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to just keep pushing through for people's expectations. I definitely do feel that fraud complex in a lot of areas of my life. Even as a producer, I still feel like because I didn't come through production department and I didn't learn all of the things I was meant to along the way about budgeting and paperwork that I don't really know what I'm doing. I just made it all up as I went along and wrote lists and figured out how to do the things on those lists. And if I didn't know how to do those things, then I'd go and ask someone. But I feel like I still haven't had the education and training and background that I should have to be a real producer. But I kind of enjoy being a fake producer, so I'm not too worried about it. (laughs) Well, you're doing a very good job of being a fake producer. Yeah, I think the more you do, the worse it gets as well because I always try and do things slightly better than what I did before or do something that takes me a step further. And the further I go along that journey, the more of a fraud I probably feel like. It's okay to do web series as a beginner and pretend you're making things up as you go along. But if you're doing a feature film, you're probably supposed to know what you're talking about. <laughs> How do you find you overcome that kind of, uh, the, those voices in your head? Or do you, do you not? Do you just kind of live with them? Talking to other people and getting that external recognition or that external, I don't mean recognition in the sense of like awards or anything like that. I mean recognition in the fact that someone will go, you did this really well or you approach things in this way that I didn't realize before they said it. Nick Batsius from Madman, who I worked with on a month of Sundays, has always been a fantastic supporter of me since day one. We started working together on the second series of Wastelander Panda, which we did for ABC iView. And he treated me as an equal from the start and helped me recognize that a lot of the skills I have as a producer that potentially make me work well as a producer aren't those things like paperwork. They're the things that don't feel like work or don't feel like skills because they come to me quite naturally more of the soft skills I guess Mm. so having people kind of justify that or tell those sorts of things to you is a real confidence booster I think yeah and it also helps to realize that there's no one way to be a producer I can be the kind of producer I want to be and I don't have to be the same as other people Mm. what a great uh, mentorship to to have I had a a guy named uh, Diamond Dallas Page on the show uh, not long ago, and he said, never underestimate the power you give to someone by believing in them. And I suppose that's kind of what you're saying. Nick uh, from Mad Men believed in you and, and kind of gave your, believed in your skills and kind of, so that gave you the support that you needed to shut out those voices or to kind of work through them anyway. Yeah, definitely. And there have been people like that all along the journey. Even when we first started Epic and did the Epic Film Fund, um, we had mentors from the Australian Cinematographers Society who kind of helped us through that process. Then the first series, um, the team at Closer Productions helped us, as well as Mike Jones, who's a writer based in Sydney. We just seemed to connect with the people along the way who resonated with what we were trying to do and would help us to get there and give us that confidence. So Mm. I feel like those relationships are really important and every time I do something new or try and do something that I haven't done before, it's about reaching out for those people whose ideas I resonate with or who seem to get what we're trying to do and asking them if they'll be part of it. And was a month of Sundays, was that uh, was that an Epic Films production? No, that was a Madman production. So they decided to shoot in Adelaide and because Nick and I had worked together on Wastelander Panda and had started to establish a really good working relationship, he asked me to come on board as the local producer here 
great. What was that? Uh, what was it? Was that kind of a daunting uh, request or, or job, or did you kind of just feel like it was the next step in the produ- producer's evolution? Um, it was daunting, and that was probably the point where we had that conversation about what skill set I could bring to the production because I was excited about it and the opportunity to be involved, but I didn't know what a producer was supposed to do in the way that I could fulfill it. Everything I'd done as a producer so far had really been about development or strategy or creating a marketing plan and thinking outside the box in terms of how to drive a project. And I could see that a month of Sundays as a higher budget, higher than Westlander Panda budget (laughs) feature film who had Nikon as a producer already, had the support of Madman behind it as a distributor and had an experienced director, writer in Matt Saville. It felt like those pieces were already in place and I didn't know what I could give to the project because I was used to doing seven roles in one on Wastelander Panda simply because of the budget size. So, yeah, it was really interesting to kind of step back and go, okay, this is what a producer needs to be on this project and this is what I can add to it. And what were those Which things? was a lot to do. Uh, a lot of it was the on-the-ground logistics in Adelaide, just having those crew and cast contacts and knowing how everything fits together on a production here locally. And then... Yeah, there was. It, I was part of every aspect of the process, just learning the areas I didn't know along the way, but then adding what I could from that local perspective. And so what kind of challenges did you face, I suppose, both philosophically and literally uh, when it came to the production and post-production of that film? Um, Production-wise, my main challenge was not feeling busy enough I think right and I ended up taking on extras casting because I just wanted something to do day to day I don't like to sit still mm. so even in, then, even in those moments did you feel like or maybe especially in those moments because I don't know I guess what it would have been like for for previous generations but certainly again to kind of use the term our generation of filmmakers we kind of and you know going back to the late night guys uh, who I had on here uh, a while ago, you know, we kind of grew up on sets where we were doing multiple jobs. And I think that's what you were saying in Wastelander Panda, you were doing seven different jobs. So when you're kind of given one specific job to do, there's kind of, you know, you, you feel like you have all this downtime suddenly. Yeah, that's pretty much what it felt like, which was a challenge. But I think it was also a sign that everything was running smoothly and that there weren't fires to put out and there weren't things that were going wrong. It was just all in place and happening and we didn't have to worry about it, which was great. Well, I'm, uh, I feel like we could sit and, and talk about the filmmaking process for hours and hours, but I don't want to take up too much of your Sunday night. Um, I really I really do appreciate you taking time out of your uh script notes and script development process. When do you actually go into production on this new film? Uh, it's not financed yet. It's only in development. Okay. We have development financing. So, yeah, depends if and when people like it, how much money we get. It's amazing. It's very, it's, I suppose it's a very exciting part of the process to be at. Yeah. Well, I think the last two years for me, I took over epic films so I'm running it by myself now and have really been trying to move it in a direction where it has a future and where we're really contributing to local production in South Australia and making the kind of content that I want to see and that I hope other people want to see so things have changed a lot but I feel like I've got a more straightforward and clear view of where I'm heading which is great that's amazing Congratulations on uh, on all of that and on moving and evolving forward as you have been. Um, I finish every conversation I have with one question and my one question to finish the conversation is what makes you silly? What makes me silly? I don't know. I don't feel like that I'm a very silly 
person. <laughs> um, I do like really bad puns. Oh yeah. I guess that makes me silly. <laughs> what's uh what's a particularly bad pun that you can recall? Um this is one that I heard at an 80th birthday party a couple of weeks ago. Oh, they have great ones there. Yeah. Um Did you hear about that actress that got stabbed um like last weekend? No, I didn't. Um, her name's Reese. Reese with a. What is it? With a. A uh, spoon? With a spoon? No, with a knife. <laughs> it's awful. It's really bad. It's fantastically, it fantastically horrendous. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. So I guess that makes me silly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kirsty. Not a problem. See you later. <laughs>